0: brought a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. If you're visiting with us this morning, you'll find a Bible right in front of you in the back of the pew. Uh, They're the ones with the black binding. You can use the index right at the front to help you find the New Testament book of the Gospel of of Mark, and we'll be in chapter 9. Again, this morning, as we've seen throughout the Gospel of Mark, uh, we see Jesus uh, do the miraculous, take someone in dire need, um, uh, a young boy who's dealing with demonic powers that are leading to, um, to all sorts of significant symptoms and are literally threatening his life and putting him in danger, um, and Jesus heals this boy. And so there's a pattern in the Gospel of Mark. This fits in the pattern, but we're in a section of Mark that where he deals with it is different. Um, starting with the beginning of our series a few weeks ago in chapter 8, uh, Jesus uh, really starts to focus on training and teaching and working on this inner circle of his followers, the disciples. That's really where the focal point is, and, uh, and it's also a focal point in Mark's Gospel, It's the center of the gospel, uh, and the reason why it's so priority for Mark is because he wants to call those he's writing to, including us, to also be disciples of Jesus. In other words, in this section that we're reading, uh, the disciples operate as a stand-in for ourselves. The whole purpose of Mark writing these things and bringing us in, as we'll see, behind the closed doors of the conversations that just Jesus has with his disciples, taking the happenings that we've been watching and then giving us the interpretation through Jesus's conversations with the disciples uh, is because these things matter for us who desire to follow Jesus And so the focal point here is not just on the fact that Jesus has the power to heal, um, that he came, in his words, to bind the strong man, to bring about victory over the devil, um, but also about the relationship between those who follow Jesus and this concept of faith, this concept of believing in Christ, and the relationship between faith and Jesus working in our lives. And so we're going to read the passage together right now, Um, starting in chapter 9, verse 14. Uh, let's, Let's read together. Verse 14, when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, and it's often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes, Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose and when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Let's pray. Father, faith is the currency of the Christian life, it is uh, not just the way that the Christian life begins through faith in Christ, and as we saw in our catechism this morning, through faith in Christ alone, uh, it's, it's what it looks like to follow Jesus. The walk of a Christian is a walk of faith. And so as we look at this passage this morning, I ask that you would help us to find ourselves in the text, that we would see where we're at, uh, and that we would more clearly uh, see Jesus as well. And We pray for your help in this, in Jesus' name. Amen. It is very helpful to get uh, to get a feel for what's going on here uh, to put this passage back in its context. Uh, notice it says in verse 14 when they came to the disciples. The they there is Jesus, Peter, James, and John. Okay? Jesus and his inner circle of his inner circle these three disciples peter james and john are coming back from this high mountain where peter james and john have seen jesus with the curtain pulled back they've seen the full reality of jesus's glory uh the brightness uh and they've seen jesus discussing uh, with these great figures of israel's history moses and elijah and they've seen this cloud Uh, representing the glory of God, covering this whole scene and heard a voice from heaven, this is my beloved son, hear him. You may remember if you were with us last week that Peter, as he was sitting there and seeing this, was so overwhelmed uh, and so afraid that he blurts out, it's good for us to be here, let us build a couple of tents, let us set up shop here, Let's, let's stay here. But now they've left there. They've gone down into the valley and they walk into a total mess. And it's worth pointing out a new mess. Okay? You can read through the Gospel of Mark so far everywhere Jesus goes, those who have needs come to Jesus and those needs are met. They need healing, they find healing. They need deliverance, they find deliverance. They need teaching, they find teaching. Over and over again, this pattern has been going out. And you can look at this and go, well, yeah, but Jesus isn't here right now. The failure that they walk into here is not Jesus' failure, but his disciples, and that's true. But earlier in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus sends the disciples out without him into the surrounding villages, and he says, go teaching that the kingdom of God has come, go healing those who are in need of healing, go casting out those uh, uh, demons where you find them. And so they've already entered into, and they've been doing the ministry of Jesus. And they come back from that, and they say, Jesus, even the demons are subject to us in in your name. They're amazed, but they're effective. And so here, they walk down, and there's uh, a crowd gathered and there's a loud argument going on. It says here that the scribes, those are the religious experts of the Jews, are arguing with the nine disciples, and there's a big crowd gathered watching, and we discover the reason is because a man has brought his little boy uh, in this horrible condition to the disciples, uh, and they couldn't do anything. Uh, Obviously, in some way, they attempted, and the attempts were worthless. They didn't work. And so this starts a argument uh, with hecklers of sorts. The scribes were not told the content uh, of the argument, uh, but now it's just turned into this big public, verbal, tumultuous fight. And so Jesus walks back into this, and as Jesus is coming, the crowds look up and they see Jesus, and they're, as they always are, they're amazed, and they're interested, and they run to him, And Jesus asked for a diagnosis, verse 16. He asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And notice, it's not the disciples or the scribes who answer about this argument. It's the man, the father of this son who speaks. He says in verse 17, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able Now, we're not told here why they were not able. In fact, the disciples don't understand why this doesn't work. They have to come to Jesus at the end, and they go, what were we doing wrong? Um, But as as we look at this, and as Jesus looks at this, um, notice his exclamation in verse 19. He answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Now, the question we have to ask in verse 19 is, who is Jesus talking about? He expresses clear frustration here. Uh, He he basically says, how long will things be as they are? Now, maybe in different circumstances, but do you know that feeling? Just out of curiosity, I I went looking for that phrase, how long, across the Bible. Uh, And it's diversely used, but incredibly common. The psalmist says, How long will you allow the wicked to reign, O Lord? The psalmist in another place says, How long will you not look upon me and forgive me of my sins? Uh, Moses says, uh, speaking speaking for God, uh, he says, How long will you continue to rebel, O Israel? Elijah says, How long will you waver between two opinions? And here, Jesus picks up that same sentiment, and the reason why I'm tracing you through that is, is not actually to show you the significance in the Bible, but to show you the significance in human life, right? Because we know what it's like to ask how long. We look at uh, our own selves and our own weaknesses, we watch as we spoil our own lives again, and we go, how long until I overcome this? We look at circumstances and we think, you know, we see the light at the end of the tunnel and then there's another curve in the tunnel and we keep going and we go, how long am I going to have to go through this? We face suffering and our suffering is inexplicable and unfixable and it's present in our lives and we say, how long? What is is the commonality there? It's a recognition somehow that we know that things aren't as they should be. And it's, it's, the, it's, it's the dealing with that, it's the tension with that, that calls us to cry out for what? Relief. And so what Jesus expresses here is frustration, and he tells us what it's about. He says it's frustration because this generation is faithless. Now, I think, as human beings living out life, whether you're a Christian or not, this idea of faith, this idea of believing in God is, for us, relatively understandable. Okay? We know what it's like to struggle. Even if you're not a Christian, the big questions of life are things we all are faced with, we all wrestle with, and we all come to a place where we're like, I, I wish it was just easier. I wish it was just neon sign in the sky that made things clear. I wish it was just evident to me. In fact, a lot of times we go, here are the reasons I can't believe. And of course, we feel that all those reasons are reasonable. If we didn't, they wouldn't be reasons, right? But it is interesting, isn't it, to just step out of our shoes for a second and assume the reality of God and ask what it might like, what it must be like for him. Okay. I know this is kind of a weird question. It's kind of a weird hypothetical. Um, but, but just for comparative sake, imagine what it'd be like if you were a parent and your child didn't believe you existed. And you go, well, that's different because we live in the same house. And it's like, but just imagine the feeling. That's, that's all I want you to get. Jesus clearly here looks at this and goes, it shouldn't be this way. There's a frustration in this. And the thing is, when we look at how Scripture diagnoses the human condition, it lays the foot, or the feet, uh, it lays the foundation of our unbelief, not at the feet of God, but at our own feet. It says that there is something that we do internally, where, in the words of the book of Romans, we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In other words, initially... Unbelief is a moral decision. It's a willful decision. Okay? We suppress the truth and unrighteousness. We reject the things, the evidences, the reasons, and because of that, we're left to other things. Now, you may not agree with that this morning, but I will point out to you that if you desire to explore Christianity, you have to do it on its terms. Okay? Uh, you have to assume the diagnosis of Christianity is true to test it as a hypothesis, just like you did in seventh grade science. Okay. We can't test things uh, as if they're not true. We have to run the experiment as if they are. Okay. And so this is what the Bible proclaims, that there's something innate in us, something inherent in us, uh, that not only cannot see, but really actively chooses not to. Wouldn't you agree with me this morning that that's the only thing that can explain Jesus' statement? Where does he place the problem for the disciples' failure to help this child? That the generation is faithless. But again, the question is who is he talking to? And for most of us, we would like to assume, and in many other places he applies it in just this way, that Jesus is criticizing the religious leaders, that they're the faithless ones. They're the easy bad guys in the gospel who are uppity uh, and self-righteous and condemning and literally following people around to point out the things they're doing wrong and they see themselves as the one true faithful and all this stuff. And so we always applaud when Jesus criticizes them. But here, I would suggest to you that the statement has to be broader. The, the, the scribes are there, and, and let's be honest, their behavior is not very great, right? Here is a child in all of this need. Remember that these scribes have encountered Jesus before. They've seen what he's capable of, but they see this failure as an opportunity to pick a fight, right? As this child maybe is writhing on the ground in pain, they're, you know, heckling. The lack of compassion here is pretty evident. But so is, if you've been reading the Gospel of Mark so far, so is the persistent unwillingness to believe. We saw a few weeks ago, uh, uh, quite a few weeks ago now, when the Pharisees back in chapter 8, verse 11 came to Jesus and they said, If you're really who you say you are, show us a sign. But these are the same people who saw Jesus do things like this and said, Well, and then came up with a reason for it. He must be partnering with the devil, and that's what this is, right? And so the problem, in their opinion, is that Jesus hasn't presented credentials. And the problem, in Jesus' opinion, is that they won't take any credential as valid, okay? And so is there a faithlessness in them? Yes, but that's not why this child is still dealing with this condition, is it? There were critics before this, There were onlookers and skeptics and religious leaders. In every story we've read, they've been present. That's not where the problem is. Is the problem in the disciples? Obviously. And that's what's so striking about this language, because in the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus constantly makes a separation between the crowds, this generation, and his disciples. So think back on when Jesus starts to teach in parables, these picture stories that both reveal truth, but also in a significant way hide the truth. Why does he do that? He says, I teach in parables so that it's hidden to the crowds, but I don't speak to you disciples in parables, do I? I speak frankly, I interpret them for you. And we see that happening in the Gospels, okay? He has broad happenings in in the outside, but in the inside, he tells them, Who do people say that I am, he asked a few weeks ago. Well, some say this and some say that. And Peter says, but we know you to be the Christ. And he says, you have the right answer. You have the revelation from heaven, Peter. You know God has revealed to you the truth. But here, how do we distinguish between inside and outside? We can't. And if you read this whole section in the center of Mark's gospel about Jesus' disciples together, that's what you see in fact. Okay, okay. To spoil the ending a little bit. When we get to Mark chapter 16. That's the very end of the gospel. Jesus has risen from the dead. Just as he said he would. And the disciples response to that. Is fear and failure. Just like. When he goes to the cross. Just as he said he would. And his disciples response to that. Is fear and failure. It's over and over in Mark's gospel. If. Mark's goal is to put us in the shoes of the disciples, Uh, we don't get to be the heroes in the Gospel of Mark. And so here, clearly, there's something wrong with them that has led to this, and Jesus asks about his followers, about his closest friends. How long? How long, O faithless generation? But I don't even think we could stop there. Because the truth is, As we watch as Jesus dialogues with this father who loves his child and wants what's best for him, he also has a conversation about faith, doesn't he? He also finds uh, a, a lack in the father, and the father knows it for himself. He says, I believe. Help my unbelief. Right? And so this idea of faith runs through the whole story. Jesus is speaking these words holistically and collectively about the crowds in the big picture, about the religious leaders, about his own disciples, and even about the father of this child. If there's anyone who gets a hall pass and isn't included, you know, in this, it's, it's the boy. He's the only one who Jesus doesn't seem to have in view here. He's merely a victim. But we still have to deal with this. What What is this outburst from Jesus? Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Again, I think one of the closest parallels is in the book of Numbers. Um, Like we read in our psalm this morning, the book of Numbers is is, uh, basically a diary of Israel's disappointing failures as God continues to faithfully provide for them. He miraculously gives them water, and they complain. He provides for all of their needs, and they go elsewhere looking for help. It's over and over again, and we hear God express, how long will I put up with this unbelief? How long will I continue to reveal myself to you with you rejecting what I reveal? That's probably the closest parallel here, but I would suggest to you that if we just leave that in the area of frustration, we miss something really significant. And actually, you can borrow it from Israel's story because does God get to the point where he gives up on Israel? No. In fact, I would suggest to you that a good summary of the entire Old Testament is God's people are unfaithful and even still God is faithful. Right? That's, that's just the way the story plays out. God continues to discipline. He brings consequences for sin, but he never, ever walks away. It just doesn't happen. You know what's really interesting in this story? I want you to notice that as he has this conversation, uh, as he has this conversation and Jesus gives this uh, exasperated statement, he says, bring him to me, verse 20, they brought the boy to him and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth and Jesus asked the father what? How long? Now, Jesus was a doctor Makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Medical history is where we always begin with a diagnosis. Tell me about your medical history. How long have you been dealing with this particular symptom? But if you've been reading the Gospels with us, if you know uh, the ministry of Jesus, we don't find another statement like this anywhere. Jesus doesn't need to know the whole story. He doesn't need to explore the medical history. He doesn't ever diagnose the cause and say, how did this come to be? He just deals with it. So I would suggest to you here, Jesus isn't asking because he doesn't know. He's drawing something out of the Father. Now put yourselves in the shoes of the Father. You bring your son. You watch as this condition is persistent. As we see here since he was a young child, it's been there. You've seen, as it says here, uh, that sometimes it comes upon him and it rolls him into the fireplace of your house. Or as you're walking along the Sea of Galilee, it throws him into the water. It's a constant threat to his life. You have to watch as your child goes rigid, foams at the mouth, shakes, and feel all of these things. What does the how long do then? It's painful. It's a reminder of the persistence of this condition. It's a reminder of how long it's been here. It's a reminder of what? That it has not yet been fixed. Is there a parallel there between that how long and Jesus' how long? I would suggest that there is. I would suggest that although, as I said, we can't distance ourselves from an unbelief like it's a disease we can't, like the boy, just claim victimhood, that this is just something that is happening to me, but it is not moral. We, we can't do that, but we can attribute to God the Father from whom all fatherhood comes that same heart that hates things that harm his children, that hates limitations in the children, and experiences the frustration that those things still exist. What I'm saying is that Jesus is both frustrated and for the best, for the greater good of even this generation, which, remember, this generation is going to reject Jesus, condemn Jesus, crucify Jesus, that he can still do that with a compassionate heart and his how long is not just, I don't want to deal with you anymore, but also, I don't want you to deal with you anymore. Again, if you're a parent, that resonates with you. You know that feeling, okay? But I want you to notice what Jesus does, uh, because I think that's the nail in the coffin of this idea that Jesus is just tired of dealing with stupid human beings. Okay, the nail in the coffin for me is what happens next. Jesus says this, and what does he do? He heals the child. He leads the father. He teaches the disciples. At the end of the story, we don't have Jesus walking away. We have people walking in closer step to Jesus. What if, what if the how long is actually the plan? And not because God is busy, and not because there's something you're doing wrong, but just because that's the way that faith grows. Do you think Abraham ever said how long? In the book of Genesis, God comes to a man with a barren wife and he says, I'm going to give you a child. 25 years later, Isaac is born. Okay, now I'm 36 now. 25 years is still a significant chunk of time based on my relative own experience. There are very few things I've waited 25 years to do. All right rent a car with cheaper insurance. I think that's it, right? There's very few things. Do you, can you imagine what it's like? And we don't have to imagine, do we? If you go back and start in Genesis 12 and read all the way till Isaac comes in chapter 16, if you read through those 25 years, what do you find? You find a struggle. You find a wrestling. You find, uh, in the words of C.S. Lewis, undulation. Uh, in C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, he talks about the fact that human beings don't do stasis very well. That steady and constant is not really a human trait. And so he develops what he calls the principle of undulation, which is that when you're a human being, sometimes you feel good, sometimes you don't. Sometimes you're running full bore, sometimes you're limping. And that's a normal part of what it means to be human. And so we see that here, right? The disciples were just on the highest mountain and now they're in the depths. They have to deal with this failure. They have to wrestle with what life is like in the valley. And we've all been there. My wife and I were talking about uh, what we call Blue Mondays the other day, which is the fact that because we as human beings, and my wife and I especially are people of expectation, we get really excited about the things that involve expectations. Christmas, trips to Disneyland, birthday parties, right? All of these things, the anticipation, the looking forward, the excitement, and the thing is, no matter how great the thing is, the next day is a letdown. Not always do we consciously think, wow, that was all, but we find ourselves back in the valley. We, we think it's like, alright, here is Christmas Day and there's, you know, good food and a happy family and all of these gifts. I just want to set up tents and live here. But you've never succeeded at that. And maybe it's just because you go to work the next day. But even there, you've had the same thing where sometimes you're just dialed in and work is exactly what you ever dreamed it would be and then it's not. This is the principle of Undulation. What I'm suggesting to you is that that's more than just human nature or human weakness, but that somehow God leans into that in the process. And so what do we see Abraham? What do we see in his story? We see a promise. We see a wrestling to believe that promise. And then by the end of the story, we have a tremendous and inexplicable faith as the same God... Who provided that child miraculously, after his wife had passed through menopause, having never borne a children in all of her life, to a hundred-year-old man bore a miraculous child, and that same God comes to Isaac, or Abraham and says, "Now I want you to travel a little distance, I want you to bring Isaac, I want you to put him on an altar, and I want you to kill him for me. I want you to sacrifice him." Have you ever read that chapter? You know what it says next? that Abraham rose early in the morning and he went. For a story that is full of wrestling, that's the one place where we'd say, that's the one thing where I'd have to, th- have to think about it, right? How do you get to that place where he trusts God so much that he basically is able to say, according to Romans chapter 4, that the same God who gave life to my child can give life back to my child. It's his problem, not mine. What? What? faith grows, and I hate to tell you this, but it grows through the struggle. It grows through time. And honestly, that shouldn't be surprising, because that's how human characters formed in general. Okay. Patience isn't just a download you get from the internet, right? It's something that you have to endure and develop and flex like a muscle. Okay. So, we need to see faith, and I hate this word, but I'm gonna use it uh, because I just, I wanna move forward. We need to see faith like a journey, okay? There's a bunch of crappy versions of journeys right now that you guys should just forget about. The whole idea of human life is a journey, you should really watch out for because the destination actually matters quite a lot, okay? But faith is something that is a process, and that's the plan, that's the desire, that's the design. And the way that God goes about it is he tests our faith. And by test, I don't mean he sets up a quiz and goes, let's see how you do with this one. I mean more like a pH test. And then he presents the findings. He goes, here's where you're actually at. The disciples have tasted victory. They know what it's like to bring life. They have all of the excitement with actually doing these things just because Jesus' name is that powerful and then it doesn't work. Is that because their faith has expired? Was there an expiration date on their power? Is it because uh, they, you know, what is it? The reason matters. That's why the disciples come and ask and that's why Jesus gives them an answer. There's something for them to learn here. Okay. Here's something I've been um, chewing on since I read it in a commentary last night uh, from, from one of my favorite Bible commentators, David Gusick. He said this. He said, disappointment always implies trusting yourself. It has to. It's in, it's in the definition. Okay? When the disciples here are disappointed that it doesn't work, it shows what's really going on. But here's the thing. Jesus deals with this faithless generation but he doesn't deal with it all in the same way. That's what I want to show you. First off, I want you to notice that in in verse 14, there's disciples, the crowds, the father, the child, and the scribes. But as soon as we get into the story, scribes are gone. Crowds are gone. In fact, we even see Jesus trying to get away from the crowds. So the first thing I want you to notice is how he deals with the scribes. And if we were honest here, how does he respond to their faithlessness? He doesn't. He doesn't. Here's the reason. It's because they have already drawn a conclusion. Can I point out a fallacy in human thinking that we fall into all the time? We believe that if we saw the miraculous, we'd have to believe. If you read the Bible cover to cover, you will see that that doesn't hold up. That people see all, things, or all sorts of things all the time. That was the criticism that Moses makes. I've done all these things for you, Israel, and you still won't believe. In fact, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, after Jesus has rose and he's literally standing in the midst of the crowd, scars in his wrists, it says, at that point, many believed but some doubted. That's how the Gospel of Matthew ends. With that reality. Uh, The reason I say this, the reason why I bring this up is because oftentimes God's work in our life doesn't bring faith, it shows whether the faith is there or not. Faith is inherently interpretive, like the rest of human life. We look at things and we have to describe and diagnose them. The scribes here have seen and do not believe. Now, I want to do something semantically for just a moment uh, that won't hold up in every context, but it will serve us from this morning. I want to draw a distinction between unbelief and doubt. Now, the reason why that's not helpful is because when he says here, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, what I'm about to say, I would say, Lord, I believe, help my doubt. Okay? I'm going to make a distinction between two things that overlap too much to make a distinction, but here it will be helpful. Here's the point. Unbelief, asks God a question and doesn't want the answer. Doubt continues to ask until it gets it. Unbelief draws a line and says, I do not believe, I am unwilling to believe. Doubt is seeking. Unbelief questions are excuses. Doubts, they're a pursuit. You have to recognize that we're capable of both. You have to recognize that sometimes the questions we ask We go, well, I don't know if I can believe in Christianity because what about this? But have you ever taken a step to find an answer? Listen, I've been in ministry and talking to people about Christianity for 15 years now. So often I've found that people create these questions and set them up there, but they never ever use it to go looking for an answer. I'm not saying that that makes them bad people. I'm saying that that's part of our human hearts collectively, that we are totally capable of not being able to see as we are rigidly covering our faces so that we cannot. Because remember again, belief in God is not just a big deal, it's high stakes. Because if there is a God, then you are not God. And if you were created, then you are responsible to a creator. And like we read this morning, even in the catechism, if the only way to salvation is belief in Jesus Christ, then that shuts a lot of doors in life, doesn't it? Faith is a high-stakes reality, and for these scribes, they have a tremendous amount to lose. All of their badges, all of their brownie points, all of their respect, all of their privilege has to come crumbling down Because they have to identify with the sinner. They have to identify with the needy. They have to reject the status that comes with the appearance of righteousness. And take the alien righteousness offered in Jesus Christ, which is the most playing field, leveling reality of all time. It's high stakes. And so he doesn't do anything here. Here's what he tells them uh, in another gospel when they demand a sign. He says, no sign will be given to you except that of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, so also will be the Son of Man in the heart of the earth for three days. He basically says there's one more thing. It's the crucifixion. It's the resurrection. So, in the Father we get something different. The Father is also not a disciple, not a follower of Jesus. What has brought him to Jesus? What is his struggle? He has a need. He's not a skeptic, he's not a critic, he doesn't have his arms crossed, he has a need, and if Jesus can fix it, he wants it fixed. But the way that he goes about things is different, and so Jesus makes the same claim, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? And then he sees the son go into this condition, and he has this conversation with the father in verse 21. Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it's often cast him into the fire, into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to one who believes. Now this is is really surprising because basically Jesus uses this as a moment to have a conversation about grammar. He corrects what the father just said. He says, you think the hang up is if I can do anything, but it's not. All things are possible to those who believe. Now, if there was a verse that could just be stripped out of the Bible and misused, it's this one. And so there's two things that we need to misunderstand that the context clears up. One, we're talking here about not faith as a general idea. He's not just saying, if you just had a more positive belief that your son would be fine, he'll be fine. Right? It's not just positivism. It's not just whatever comes out of your mouth comes into reality. It's none of those things. What Jesus means here clearly in this context is the issue is not if it's possible for me, it's possible for me. The question is, do you believe in me? That's part one. Second, when it says all things are possible to those who believe, that's not the same thing as all things are promised to those who believe, right? This is not a blank check where Jesus says, I am at your service like a genie. Just rub the lamp and give me your wishes, and as long as you believe, they'll happen. When we read the rest of the New Testament, what happens to these same disciples who, by the way, greatly grow in their faith and become tremendous believers? They suffer. They're imprisoned. They're tortured. They're crucified or beheaded. They're banished. Paul says there's something so hard in his life, so difficult, that he wishes he could die. He despairs, he says in 2 Corinthians 1, of life itself. In fact, he thought that what was going on him was so bad that it was inevitable he was gonna die any moment. That's how deep his pain was. But when he tar- starts to describe it later in the book in 2 sec- Corinthians chapter 10, what does he say? He says, I prayed that God would take it away, and he wouldn't. He says, instead, he spoke to me and he said, my grace is sufficient for you. In fact, my strength is perfected in your weakness. And so he says, so I boast in this weakness because it's an opportunity to encounter God's strength. What did we see last week? What did Jesus say to the crowds? If anyone seeks to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Okay. And so this isn't just a blank check. If anyone believes for whatever you want, a big house, the perfect man, whatever it is, the job that you want, then you'll get it. And if you don't, there's something wrong with your faith. That's not what the idea is here. The idea is to clarify for this man that the issue is not one of God's ability. He says, if you can help, please do. What's the implied question there? Can you help? What's the implied lack? Is it possible that there's nothing you can do? But that's never been and will never be the problem. Jesus is sufficient for this need. In fact, when he takes care of it here, there's no struggle whatsoever. He commands the demon to go, the demon goes, he raises the child up, and it's over. The struggle is for the man. All things are possible to those who believe. But I want you to notice his answer, and I want you to notice his answer because it's sufficient for Jesus. Because Jesus says, you got to believe, and then the man answers, and then he heals the boy. Right? That's the order of events. What does the Father respond? Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That's an important clarification. Because the problem here is not one of the amount of faith. He, Jesus doesn't say, if you believe enough. He says, if you believe. Now, we could make a distinction. Maybe it's helpful between, uh, between amount and reality. Right? There's the possibility of an untrue faith. There's a danger in that. But Jesus says in another place that it's not an issue of a mountain. He says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, and you say to this mountain, be cast into the sea, it will happen. Okay? It's not about the size. It's not about the, uh, the size of your faith. But it is about the reality of faith. But I want you to notice something else. When this man says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, he says two things. He says, I'm a believer, I don't believe. In other words, he takes that statement of Jesus, how long will I bear with you, faithless generation? And he says, I'm faithless, and I don't like it either. Now, obviously, he's got some skin in the game. We could look at this and go, does he want to just believe because he believes faith is good? No, he wants to believe because it seems to be the thing that hinders his son being healed. Jesus doesn't seem to have a problem with that either. But here's the thing that I want to point out. The scribes would neither say, I believe in you, Jesus, nor would they say, help my unbelief. Categorically different. One assumes... The problem is with Jesus, despite all the evidence. The other is willing to take Jesus' diagnosis that the problem lies with him and ask for help. And this is so mind-blowing to me because it it unearths this big mistake we make with faith. What if God is willing to help you believe? It's a total game-changer. What if it's not? If you believe, then God is willing. What if we don't just need to put our trust in Jesus, but we can actually ask for help in that trusting? Now again, if you read the stories of Scripture and you look at the people that God made promises to, the struggle to believe is real and it's constant. But it's also the laboratory, it's also the workshop where God is cultivating faith. No one makes it into Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, all these things happened without this process, without this struggle. In other words, what we have here is a true beginning, the birth of faith in this man's life. It's just a baby. And that's fine. Because that's how faith works. Just like a baby, it's either real and alive or not. But just like a baby, it's immature. It needs to be nourished. It grows. It cultivates. And God is into that. He's interested in that. And so if you're not a Christian this morning, there's two things that could have brought you here that would align with this story. One of them might just be your own skepticism. You're open to check it out. You're pretty sure it's not true. There's nothing wrong with that. The Bible is open to skeptics. God even invites in Isaiah, he says, come let us reason together. He's interested in that. It's okay to have doubts as long as you remember to doubt your doubts. It's okay to be a skeptic as long as you're also a self-skeptic. It's okay to question if Christianity is true as long as you will allow, you, allow it to question you as well. And here's why this is important. Because we're not talking about just doctrine and dogma and beliefs. We're talking about a relationship with the living God. And so it's the difference between you coming into a room with another person who you do not know and pulling out a scalpel and dissecting and going, let's see what we can learn Or sitting in the chair and having a conversation, which is much more vulnerable, but also the only way that you actually get to really know. And the scary thing about having a conversation is you're no longer in the chair of the interrogator. You have to respond to the questions. You have to deal with the counter-arguments. You have to be willing to put yourselves in the shoes of the world as the other person sees it. That's how conversation works. It's also how Christianity works. And so you can come like the Father. I believe, help my unbelief. I'm interested in believing God. If you're really there, those are all good ways to begin. But also be wary. Be aware that it is possible to be faithless, not because there's nothing to believe in, but because we are unwilling to believe. Or maybe, maybe your place is more close to the Father where the thing, the driving force in your life right now, Christian or not, is just a big fat need. A trouble. A problem. A situation that's not going away. Something that's leading you to cry out, how long? We cannot oversimplify here. Please don't hear me saying that God has allowed this in your life just to make you a better believer. That would be an oversimplification. But, Paul tells us, if you're a Christian this morning, that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. So whatever it means and however it got there, God can use it. And so it's okay to wrestle. It's okay to be honest. It's okay to bring your unbelief before the God who's asking you to believe. All of that's fine. All of that's good. All of that's part of the process. Read the Psalms. The Psalms are a wrestle. And God says, this is my word. This is scriptures. There's one more group here, and this is the disciples. The disciples know who Jesus is. They've signed on with their lives. They've made the procl- proclamation, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. They have a history of seeing God work in their lives and even seeing God work through them. This is not the first demon-possessed little boy they've ever encountered but it is their first failure. And it's natural for us to go, what happened here? And that's what the disciples asked too. And so notice the story continues at the end there. Verse 25, when Jesus saw that a crowd was running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit saying to it, you mutant deaf spirit, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. After crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse. So the most of them said he is dead, but Jesus took him by the hand. And lifted him up and he arose he restores the child back to his son but then he has a uh, has a follow-up with his disciples verse 28 and when he had entered the house what house we're not told when mark uses this language it's always to create a wall of privacy when he'd entered the house When he was away from the crowds, when it was just the disciples, at the end of the day, that's the idea here, when he'd entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And notice what he says. He said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, your translation may add and fasting there, and that's because the manuscripts, the copies, the ancient copies we have of the Gospel of Mark disagree here. The majority of them have prayer and fasting, but the ones that are the oldest in their dating and the ones that are the most consistent in being right in other places, it's missing. Okay. It doesn't make a difference as long as you understand what Jesus is trying to say here. If you read it as, here are the things you need to do on top of faith. If you read it as, these are the works that you do to accomplish. These are the means to the end. If you read it as just that way, Um, then you're going to miss out here. And and honestly, that can't really be the case. First off, okay, first, when Jesus says this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer and fasting, he can't be saying what you should have done is say, come back next Tuesday, we're going to fast first. That just, it's incongruent with what's going on. At the very least here, Jesus is not talking about stopping and praying now We're stopping and fasting now. He's talking about a lifestyle or a pattern of prayer and fasting. Now, second, the idea here with prayer or with fasting is not somehow that your faith tank is running low and so you need to recharge with prayer and fasting. It can't be you weren't powerful enough to do this because you didn't pray enough or because you didn't fast enough. As soon as we tack that word enough on the end there, we misunderstand That's why I say that prayer and fasting, it doesn't matter if the and fasting is there because ultimately what Jesus is talking about here in prayer and fasting is the same thing and we would call it dependence. It's a lifestyle of dependence. And so what is fasting about? It's not about cleansing yourself of other things so that you can. It's about recognizing that man cannot live on bread alone but by everything that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's a declaration that God... Your relationship is a higher priority to me than my personal nourishment, which I need to live. It's a dependency declaration. Okay? Prayer is the same thing. The idea here is that they did, it's not that they didn't pray in the right way or have the right words. The idea here is that they didn't do enough praying. It's that a lifestyle of prayer makes faith and the right type of faith more likely. And here's why. Because prayer does a couple of things. One, it reminds us that God is there. It reminds us that God is there. We wonder why we don't experience more of God in our life. But prayer is a way to verbalize the reality that he's already there. Take all the facets of prayer. Yes, there's supplication, which means to ask for stuff. But there's also thanksgiving. Thanksgiving takes time to look at your life and say, what is God doing? And then connect the dots between that thing and the God who did that good thing. Okay. I will tell you this. The more you express gratitude to God in prayer, the more aware you will be of his work in your life. Because we are myopic people, aren't we? And when bad things happen, we don't weigh them equally with the good things. We outweigh them. Okay. Gratitude realigns us with the reality of our life with how much we have to be thankful for. Okay, there's also adoration. Adoration is the part of prayer which is just outright worship. It thanks God, not for what he's done, but for who he is. It says, God, this is who you are. It takes God's word, and it says it back to him. What does that do for you? Why does every prayer recorded for us in the New Testament begin with an address? Old Testament as well. It's never just help. It's always God who created the universe. It's always the one who sent Jesus Christ. It's always the giver of all life and goodness. It's always the father of lights. Why are those addresses there? Obviously, it's not so that our prayers get to the right God. It's so that we remember who it is we're praying to. A life of prayer cultivates a better understanding of who God is. This is a I don't know if this illustration works or not because frankly, I'm just not a phone person, but I'll make a guess, I'll make a wager. I bet when the stakes get high, the people you call, whether it's for advice or comfort or for help, are the same ones you usually call. I bet there's a correlation between establishing regular rhythms of communication and reaching out when the rhythm falls out. Prayer is the same way. Prayer cultivates dependency because of thanksgiving. It cultivates dependency because it reminds us of who God is. It cultivates dependency because there's an amazing significance in the little things. And so if we, as we have this rhythm and we reach out to God, suddenly the big things become more things that God can do. Right? All of these things are part. His point here is that the disciples are functioning as independents. And that's where the failure is. It's not if you had just prayed and then said, get out of him, demon, it would have worked. It's if you were living, breathing prayer, your faith wouldn't be out of sync. And who knows what it was? I mean, this is a pretty serious, demonic episode. Maybe it was worse than anything they'd done, and that's why they wavered. Maybe there was a bunch of pride and arrogance and they sauntered up and just went, everybody step back and we'll show you how somebody really handles this, right? Maybe their eyes were on themselves and not on Jesus. There's a thousand things that could be, all of them are remedied by prayer. Because prayer is not just about telling God what we need, it is a reorienting of life to a particular type of relationship and that is the relationship of dependence. We don't always think of this, but faith is dependence. Faith says not just help me do this, but help me do this because I cannot. And prayer is an essential part of that. It's not the fuel of faith, it's the expression of faith. It's not uh, the missing component, but it is a cultivator, it is a means of grace, like the ancient church used to call it. A conduit through which God grows his people. Now, I found this tremendously convicting because for many of us, myself included, too often, prayer is something I run to when faith runs dry. Prayer is something I run to when I finally need God because this is too big for me. Prayer is something I do on foul-weather days. Should we really be surprised when it's on those days we hit the wall? Prayer is like Jogging, which makes sense because I don't like to jog either, (laughs) right? There's a difficulty in it. There's the creating of a new rhythm. It's these types of things. But when the marathon comes, you don't end up vomiting on the sidelines after the second mile, right? There's a rhythm to it. There's a naturalness to it. God doesn't call you to prayer because it's another duty for you to do. He calls you to prayer because he wants you to actually know him. It's an amazing invitation. But when we are weak as Christians, a lot of times we're weak because of a lack of prayer. And not the right prayer in the moment, not the right language or the right bargain with God, but this cultivated life of dependency. And that's what makes fasting so valuable, another thing I don't like. Fasting is so valuable because it is a desperate new beginning. It says, I need you so much that I'm going to make it count in my stomach and I'm going to make it count for days of, or or meals of, or however long you do it. I'm going to focus on you, because even if I don't know it, I need you that much. But here's the thing, This this is what I want to point out. In every one of these areas, Jesus's desire is that the generation would not be faithless. And it's not because God needs us to believe in him. It's not because this somehow harms his ego. It's because nothing has been more destructive in life than that conscious, independent choice we make to be independent. That conscious choice we make to ignore, to deny, to not call on, we could put it in a thousand words. When you go back to the garden, what is asked of Adam and Eve in the garden by the serpent? Be your own. Choose your own way. Make your own decisions. Trust your own ability. Pursue your own glory. That self-focus. Instead of this benevolent creator who desires a relationship with us and invites us, not just to believe in him, but to know him, to enjoy him, to call upon him, to live with him. But faith is an essential component in that. so Jesus says how long, but he also is working in the how-longedness. And he's on the move, and he's cultivated by it. He's not bothered by our Lord's, I believe, help my unbelief. Let's pray. Father, we want to stand on the language that you give this morning. All things are possible to him who believes. But we also want to stand in your rebuke. O oh, faithless generation, how long? How long will things be this way? We want to stand in the in the shoes of the Father and say, Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. and we want to hear your words to the disciples and recognize that there are certain things in our lives, you just call them these things. These things are impossible without prayer. Father, I ask that you would search the heart of each one here this morning, wherever they're at, however they would identify, whatever they're going through, I pray, Lord, that you would lay your finger on the place where there is work to be done, not work to please you, because all of that has been accomplished in Jesus Christ, but work in getting to the truth of where we're really at, what we really believe about God, not just what, the, what words come out of our mouth, but what flows from our heart, what's dis- demonstrated in the persistent actions of our life. And ultimately, Lord, I pray that you would help us to surrender. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for one another. We thank you for this opportunity in the barbecue to spend time together, and we thank you for this opportunity to worship you and express with our mouths what is true. Even if we don't feel it is true this morning, we can come alongside and in faith proclaim that what you've said and who you say you are is true. And even when that worship is wrestling, it is pleasing to you, and it is productive. We pray that we would find it to be so this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.